Alright, so Revelation chapter 19, we're going to be looking at the first 10 verses uh, today. The, before we get going, however, I want to present um, some options before you. And so, if you will, um, Joseph, advance us one slide, and let me give you an option. Advance it again. No, advance. Advance your <laughs> arrow forward. There you go. Which sandwich would you want? The one with raisins. The one with raisins in it. Probably you want the one on the left. Let's look at our next option. Where would you rather live? Probably the one on the right. Let's go forward one more. Which would you prefer to have decorating your house? Some options are very clear, are they not? Some options are absolutely 100% clear. When we see a vile alternative and a beautiful choice, it only makes sense to reject the vile alternative. This is important to us as we continue on in the book of Revelation because where we've been going since chapter 17, verse 1, we have seen a depiction of a woman, and she is a vile woman. So as we continue on and, and look at our context, we are, we've been given this picture of Babylon who is presented to us as a harlot as one who may appear on the outside to be beautiful but actually she brings men to their death chapter 17 1 through 1910 of the book of Revelation form a single literary unit so this is the context and let's go through our context so that we can understand where we are going. The context then is chapter 17, 1 through 19, 10 form a literary unit. And it began in chapter 17, 1. Then, the one who had seven, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. And so chapter 17, 1 began with John being revealed to, uh, being given a vision. He says, Come and I'm going to show you a vision of this harlot. And then for the most part, chapter 17 and 18, especially chapter 18 shows us the picture of this woman who is described as Babylon and in chapter 18 we saw her judgment now we have described Babylon not as a literal city um, Babylon is that city of man it is that world view it is that world system that lures people away from Christ it drags people or it allures people away from the purity of devotion to Christ into idolatry and immorality and last week we saw her destruction and so from chapter 17 1 we began to see a focus on this idolatrous and immoral woman who was identified as Babylon. And in chapter 18, we saw her destruction. So that's where we've been. Let's take a look just by way of preview of where we hope to go today. I have to admit, these past few weeks have been pretty bleak. Chapter 17 is not a chapter of joyful singing. Chapter 18 is dark, again speaking of judgment. Chapter 19, however, is glorious and beautiful. It is filled with singing. It is filled with rejoicing. I'm kind of glad. I mean, we've got to go through some of the hard stuff. But boy, oh boy, it is sure nice to come to a passage of text that is just filled with rejoicing and victory and sounds of praise and glory and honor to our King. And so the past is behind us. And today we are going to move forward and look at the celebration of saints who have persevered in faithfulness. They have not been lured away by the harlot. They have not been 
deceived by this woman who promises one thing, but in the end it is destruction. In our text today, we will begin to see the promises of Christ fulfilled. And that is going to be a great and wondrous day. This is a passage that is filled with rejoicing. As you leave here today, I pray, I pray that we walk out of here strengthened. I pray that we walk out of here rejoicing. I pray that we have hope renewed. I pray that we will have strength to carry on. I pray that we will have eyes open and solely fixed upon our great King and Bridegroom, Jesus Christ our Lord. The need for chapter 19, at least the first ten verses, are obvious. There is this obvious contrast between the harlot and the bride. I mean, John just he shows us the vileness of this harlot. And then immediately when he gets done showing her judgment, he gives us the picture of the bride. There's this obvious contrast. There's an obvious contrast between those who follow the harlot and they're lamenting at her destruction and those who follow the bride, or the bride, those who are part of the bride, and they're rejoicing and they're singing. There are these obvious contrasts. There are these obvious choices. There is going to be... Those who lament because they have followed the harlot, and there will be those who rejoice because they are part of the bride. And just as I presented choices, obvious choices to you before at the very beginning of this message, the contrast between these two are so distinct and so pronounced. To follow the harlot. Is foolish destructiveness, and to follow the bride, and to follow the bridegroom, and to be part of the bride, is really the only obvious choice. I think that's why one reason John gives us them right side by side. There is no choice. There really is no choice in the matter. If you have a moldy sandwich and a good sandwich, there is no choice in the matter, is there? If you can live in the slums or live in a park-like setting, there really is no choice. And so, we see this obvious contrast between the harlot and the bride. And the reason being is John is encouraging his readers. He is encouraging the saints who first heard this message to persevere in trial and temptation. He wants to make sure that they have the strength to retain faithfulness to Christ. Remember, they were being persecuted. They were being lured away. We see that in chapters 2 and 3. We see the temptation to deny Christ because of persecution. We see the temptation to deny Christ and go after worldly satisfaction. And John is saying, that looks good and it brings destruction. You need to understand who you are. And I want to encourage you. John writes this passage. The Spirit inspires John to write this section in order to refresh the weary. His, his readers are growing weary under the trial. He wants them to know, man, it is worth it. Keep going on. Be refreshed. He wants to give power to the complacent who are perhaps thinking that it's better to compromise it's better just to go with the flow. And John is saying, no, it's not better to go with the flow. And John is writing this to give hope to the beleaguered. If you need refreshment this morning, if you are weary of living the Christian faith, if you feel that you've become complacent and you have no idea where the power is going to come from to shatter that complacency, if you feel beleaguered and without hope, today the message, I pray, will refresh you, it will empower you, and it will give you hope. Let's read our text this morning and rejoice. After these things I looked, and I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. 
because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like a voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So we begin this passage Um, This beautiful passage with a response. You'll recall up in chapter 8, verse 20, there was a call to worship. Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. That was the call to worship. And chapter 19, verse 1, is the response. Well, not exactly part of your text, you should note that is one reason why our church services begin with a call to worship. It is not just some man-made device or something that is founded in tradition, but there are many places in Scripture where the saints, the people of God, are called to worship. This is one of them. There is a call to worship. Come and worship your great King, and there needs to be a response. This is why, whether it be by Scripture or through the singing of a song or through a particular type of a prayer, we call to worship. There is a call, and then there is a response. And here is the response, the call. Come and worship. And the response is, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power to our King. Chapter 18, verse 20. Come and worship. God has vindicated you. You have been seen by the eyes of the world as being insignificant, as being harmful to the well-being of progress. This is what you've been seen, but now you've been vindicated. So come and worship. Come and worship because God has poured out His wrath upon a wicked world. This is so so interesting to me because normally many unbelievers come and say that God would judge the world as a blight against the character of God, but in Scripture it is something that is praiseworthy. Have you ever thought about that? That it is a praiseworthy characteristic of God that He judges the wicked. It is not a blight against His name. God considers righteous judgment something that is praiseworthy. We would do the same. Would we not? If we heard of a a person who harmed a child, and we heard that they were captured and sentenced for life in prison, would we say, oh, praise God! And wouldn't we give praise if we and send praise or express praise or thanksgiving if somebody who was innocent but accused of a crime was set free because they were truly innocent? Wouldn't we rejoice that the innocent was vindicated? And won't we rejoice when the guilty are judged? We do that in our regular life. This is what God is calling us to do. Praise God, the wickedness of this earth is being judged. The oppression of this this world system has been judged and the, the righteous have been vindicated. Praise God, this is not a... something that is 
that we need to be ashamed of. It is a cause for praise. And here we begin to see a fourfold praise beginning with the phrase hallelujah. The word hallelujah is a universal term. It's used only four times in the New Testament. Guess where those four times are? <laughs> right here. It is a, it's a Hebrew word. You probably all know that. The word um, for praise in Hebrew is hallel. Um, so hallel is praise. And then you have this little you, that's just a preposition, hallelu, which is you. Or if you're King James, it's ye. Praise ye. And Yah, which is a shortened form of Yahweh. Praise ye the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And four times we are going to see praises from our God. I love to see how John contrasts things because you'll remember there were three groups of people lamenting the destruction of Babylon. Remember that? We saw the kings and the merchants and the mariners, right? All three were lamenting the fall of Babylon. And now we have four groups praising God for His victory, for His vindication. And all of creation begins to praise God. Three, three groups lament the destruction of the world system. And four groups come and give praise to God for what He has done. Let's look at our first halal. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. He has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality and He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. A lot of things going on here, but the first Hallel goes like this. Salvation, glory and power belong to God alone. We need to understand that. We need to recapture that. We need to be reminded of that. If you don't know that, you need to know that. That salvation, power, and glory belong to God and God alone. This world system, though it seems to foster praise, it seems to be glorious, perhaps it appears to be very powerful, but it is not powerful, it is not glorious, and it will not save you. God and God alone will save you. And salvation belongs to God and Him alone. And Babylon has portrayed herself as worthy of praise. She has portrayed herself as, as a powerful entity. She has portrayed herself in glorious splendor. But she is not glorious. She is not powerful. And she will not save you. If you think that you will find salvation in our economic system, you, you have a lot to learn. All right, It's fine. Make your investments. Set, set resources aside for the future. But also don't be surprised that that whole thing collapses. I think it was uh, in one of the chaplaincy training seminars. I know um, Dr. Paget uh, shares this maybe with your group when you went through chaplaincy training, if you've gone through that. Um, I think it was at, um, during Katrina or after Katrina, she was down there and she says how uh, somebody was... Uh, Proclaiming uh, that, oh, now, now I'm going to be taken care of. Now there's salvation. Now, now somebody's thinking it's, this person is praising God. They, they were actually referencing the government is going to save them now. FEMA might be able to help you. But what's keeping FEMA afloat? Let me tell you, she was trusting in the wrong thing for her salvation. His judgments are true and righteous. Do you believe that? When God judges, do you really believe it's true and righteous? That is, that His judgments are in line with reality. God God judges truly. And God judges righteously. That is, it is just. He is not bribed and He is not tricked. You can't say, hey, listen, that slip a hundred your way. Maybe you can see things a little different. God says, I own the cattle on the thousand hills. I don't need your hundred bucks. I own everything. I made it all and I'll make more if I need it. I don't need you. I don't need whatever it is you have to offer. Whatever you have to offer me, I gave you anyways. He cannot be bought. 
Babylon has lured people from Christ. I want you to understand that the judgment is just because Babylon has lured people away from Christ and lured them into hell. That is where she has brought people. And she will be judged. This isn't some benign like, oh, you know, we just kind of, we're another option. No, she has brought, dragged down the souls of men to hell. Dragged them away from Christ, lured them away from the purity of Christ, and as a result, they are eternally damned. And God says, my judgment on her is just. She is now removed. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The second Hallel. And a second time they said, Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. I love this one. Her judgment and her removal is irreversible. Praise God. This will be an infinite display of God's righteousness. I don't think that this is literal. I don't think that we're in the new heaven and new earth and we'll actually see smoke actually rising up from some destroyed figurative city. But it certainly is, is a reminder that when God is done with this, it is done. It is over and she will no more deceive people. Praise God. Hallelujah. The third Hallel. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. This echoes Psalm chapter um, 106.48. This is a psalm of victory over enemies. And it ends like this. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen, Hallelujah. These living beings, these heavenly beings and before the throne of God, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, regardless of how you understand them, they all fell down, fall down and say, Amen, Hallelujah. What does Amen mean? It is true. So be it. It is a true statement. They are affirming that what God has done is true and they praise God for it. Amen. It is true. They're ratifying what God, that God's just judgment. It is true. Remember when Jesus would say, truly, truly, I say to you, it was amen, amen, I say to you. But all the people say amen, praise the Lord. And now we have these heavenly beings falling down and praising the Lord. And then we see kind of an interlude. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants who fear Him, the small and the great. There have been these three hallelujahs for glory and power and honor and dominion belong to God. He has judged the harlot. Her smoke rises up forever. It's irreversible. She will not recover from this. The heavenly beings fall down and worship and say, Amen. This is an imperative now. Give praise to God, small and great. This is not a suggestion. It is not a good idea. It is an imperative. All you, small and great, give praise to God. So how about it? Let's stand and let's give praise to God. What do you think? We're going to sing. It's an imperative. Amen. Now, let's sing.
Hallelujah. Those are our three out of four praises. You can sit down. I just thought, how can we be commanded to give praise to God and not stop and give praise to God? It just didn't make sense. So, I know the singing part's supposed to come at the first part of the service, but by golly, you just got to do it. Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. That was us. And then I heard something like a voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, here's the fourth one, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Isn't that what we just sang? Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And so our... Here we come. Verses 1-5 through focused on praise of God for His salvation through judgment. And chapter 6-8 through begins with a hallelujah and focuses on praise for His reign and the marriage of the Lamb. So let's look at this fourth hallel. Yahweh is praised because He reigns. Just like we saw back in Revelation 11.15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And now there is the call to worship. Here's the response. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. This is where we are going. Let us rejoice. Why are we to rejoice? Why are we to be praising? Why? Because the wedding is about to begin. And here comes probably, perhaps, the most beautiful and powerful images in all of Scripture. The marriage of the Lamb. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time here. This is a really significant truth. And we see it played out in life, but we also see it played out as a metaphor. Marriage in Scripture cannot be overstated. The importance of marriage in God's plan cannot be overstated. We first see marriage at the very beginning, don't we? It's one of the very first... Pretty much after He creates male and female, basically there's wedding. That's the first thing God does. I mean, think of it. Before God creates the church, He creates marriage. Before God created the, the people of Israel, He created marriage. Before God created any institution, there was marriage. At the very beginning, there's marriage. At the very end, there's marriage. And all the way through the Bible, there is marriage. It is a big issue in Scripture. It is showcased from, by God in Scripture from the very beginning to the very end. We're going to see more marriage theme as we get further along in, in the book of Revelation because John is going to introduce us to the bride again later on in the book of Revelation. He's just now kind of initially introducing us to her. And you've noticed how John does that. He introduces a character and then he goes away for a while and comes back and gives us greater detail. He's going to do that here. And so marriage in the Bible is showcased from beginning to end. In a certain way, you could say that God was wed to the people of Israel at Sinai. And it's not insignificant at all that God uses the language of unfaithfulness, of adultery, when Israel is unfaithful to Him. When she wanders off and chases after other lovers, and after other shiny things, God just doesn't say, oh, you've turned away from me. He calls it adultery. So to a certain In a certain way, God was married to Israel at Sinai. And when she was unfaithful, He called her an adulteress. The Bible tells us that adultery 
is one of the legitimate reasons for divorce from Scripture. God had every right to divorce us. But instead, we see very, in a variety of places, but very vividly and beautifully in the book of Hosea, where God says, no, I'm going to marry you again. And I'm going to make a new covenant with you. Yes, you've gone astray. Yes, you have committed adultery. Yes, I can divorce you. And I won't. I'm going to marry you again. And I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, he begins to describe himself as the bridegroom. People were asking about fasting. He says, John the Baptist, they're his disciples fast, but yours don't. And Jesus says, nobody fasts when the bridegroom's present. I mean, when you go to a wedding, right? So you get to the wedding, and then you go to the reception hall, right? And they open it up, and the, whoever's organizing it says, okay, here's the reception, we're all going to fast. That doesn't happen, right? We're going to feast. That's what happens, all right? So fasting is, is when the bridegroom is present, we don't fast. That's what Jesus was saying. Jesus often told parables referring to the kingdom of heaven was like a wedding feast. We read one earlier. The kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast. Jesus tells us to be ready as a bride prepares herself for her husband. We see that in Matthew 25. So we see that Jesus used this idea of a wedding to demonstrate what it is to be a kingdom citizen, part of the kingdom of God, and what it is to anticipate what is to come. Paul so beautifully in Ephesians chapter 5 describes uh, marriage as the relationship between Christ and His church. And it's so unfortunate. I'm not surprised that, that Satan would use this passage to distract from such a beautiful passage of Scripture. But, but we all know um, the passage of Scripture that says, Wives, be subject to your husbands, and we all freak out. And we're all busy trying to defend, and what does that mean? And then, of course, we counter with, Yeah, but then he says, you know, husbands love your wives, Christ loved the church, and laid down. That's all true. And then at the end, Paul says, but I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about Christ and His church. Do you see what your, a marriage is? We have belittled and made marriage so less than what it is. We've made it a social construct. We've made it a way of getting insurance benefits or whether or not we can... Um, pass on benefits or visit somebody in the hospital or legitimately be intimate with the, the person who we love. That's what we've reduced it down to. Paul's saying marriage is a living metaphor. It is a living parable of how Christ and His church relate to one another. And when we divorce one another, we are saying that Christ divorces His wife. Because the picture of marriage, God made marriage for a number of different reasons. And one of the reasons is to display the beauty of Christ in His church. We need to keep that in mind. I, I'm not here to condemn. I know many people have been divorced. I'm not here to... That's not, this is not a condemnation. This is, let's lift up what is true. The past is the past. God has forgiven the past. Let's move on and understand what the glory of God has really done. Marriage in the Bible is often used as a metaphor it reflects Christ's sacrificial love. Here's the bottom line. Here's the universal need that all human beings, regardless of where they live, regardless whether they're male or female, every human being on this planet needs to be loved. Let me add to that. They not only need to be loved, they need to love. We need to express love as well as be loved. There's not a single person in this world who does not need to be loved. And the marriage metaphor reflects that love. It describes the incomparable relationship of being loved. It describes the incomparable relationship of being protected, of being secure, of being satisfied. We all desire that. The Bible tells us that Christ loves His bride sacrificially. It, the Bible tells us that that Christ purifies His bride and nourishes her 
It says even that he, 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 knew, he, he purifies her so that he might present his bride to himself beautiful. There's no such thing as an unattractive bride. I've never done a wedding and not seen an, uh, and seen an unattractive bride. It's not their physical appearance, man. There's just something beautiful. When they walk down the aisle, man, it's just a, one of the most beautiful things. Christ is preparing His people to be beautiful to Him. I mean, when I was getting married and I saw Simone walking down, I'm like, oh my goodness. Imagine Christ preparing His church, you and me, because He doesn't want an ugly bride. He's going to make sure that we are the most beautiful thing He has ever seen. Christ has seen angels. Christ has seen matter come out of nothing. Christ has seen the most amazing things. But Christ is going the most beautiful thing that Christ is going to see is that day when his church is presented to him in all of her purity and all of her beauty and all of her glorious splendor. Christ loves his bride sacrificially. Christ purifies his bride. Christ nourishes his bride. Christ is united with his bride. Now, let me just stop here for a moment. And I'm just going to talk to the guys. You ladies, you can take a nap or whatever. <laughs> just no doubt about it. You know, guys, we struggle with this kind of marriage metaphor. It's not that we don't like weddings or anything like that. We just probably think of them a little bit differently. Alright, I know ladies, probably from the time you were six, you were preparing your wedding. Guys thought about it about the day they were getting married. We like weddings. But I can understand there are guys going, oh, I just really cannot relate to this whole bride metaphor. I mean, really, I'm going to be a bride? Jesus is a bridegroom? This is all kind of weird. We have a book in our back shelf called Why Men Hate Church. It's a great book. But one of the reasons men hate church is because oftentimes church services are very effeminate. And then we come to this idea of this very unmasculine, this seemingly unmasculine idea. I want you to understand, don't take the metaphor too far. It is not unmasculine, but it is a vivid description of the unity that the people of God have with Christ. Christ uses a lot of metaphors to describe the unity that he has with his people. He says, you are my body. He says, you are a temple. He says, you are sheep. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Now, when we hear those metaphors, none of us actually think of ourselves as a body part. And none of us really think of ourselves as a brick in a building. And we don't think of ourselves as livestock. And we don't think of ourselves as flora. We all understand that these are metaphors used to describe the unity that the people of God have with the one who purchased them. And so it is with the the wedding and bride metaphor. We are united with Christ. He loves us with such a great love. I want to read a passage passage from um, Dr. James Hamilton's um, commentary on the book of Revelation. Because I think he describes the marriage of the Lamb so perfectly. It's a lengthy quote. And I want to get it right because I just read it over and over again as I studied for this. We can scarcely imagine the glory of that wedding day. Never has there been a more worthy bridegroom. Never has a man sacrificed more for his beloved. Never has a man gone to greater lengths, humbled himself more, endured more, or accomplished more in the great task of winning his bride. 
Never has a father more wealthy planned a bigger feast. Never has a more noble son honored his father in everything. Never has a man treated his bride-to-be more appropriately. Never has a more powerful pledge like an engagement ring been given than the pledge of the Holy Spirit given to his bride. Never has a more glorious residence been prepared as a dwelling place once the bridegroom finally takes his bride. Great will be the rejoicing. Great will be the exaltation. There will be no limit to the glory given to the Father through the Son on that great day. Never has a bridegroom done more to qualify his beloved to be his bride. Never has a bride needed her bridegroom more. Never has there been a wedding more significant than this one. Never has a prince with more authority taken a bride with less standing. Never has a bride had her prince die for her, rise from the dead for her, to give her his own standing before the Father. Never has a bridegroom loved his bride more. And never has a bride waited so long for her bridegroom. Never has a bride sung more songs to her beloved. And never has there been a wedding with more guests than this one will have. And Never has a wedding taken place on a more momentous occasion. The end of the overlapping ages and the ushering in of the kingdom. Never has there been a marriage like this one. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I want to remind you of a passage of scripture in John chapter 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be there also. I want you to understand, this is wedding language. This is pure and simple wedding language. Because how did the wedding take place? There was a betrothal, in which case there was a down payment given. There were, it's not insignificant that John or Paul, Jesus talks about this wedding language and then immediately goes in and starts talking about the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, is the wedding ring, is the engagement, is the, is the bride price, is the guarantee that this wedding is going to take place. Anyways, that's another subject. So, Jesus... In, in Jesus' day, there would be the betrothal, the promise. This was as good as done. There is now a, a commitment, a devotion. And then what would happen is he would give the bride, the groom would give the, the bride prize, would give the dowry, and then he would go away. And he would prepare a place for his bride. And probably next to his father's house. And he would begin building. And when he got done building, then he would come and take his bride and come back to their house and there would be the wedding ceremony. That's wedding language. I'm going to go away. And I'm going to leave with you an engagement promise. The Holy Spirit to enable you to be pure to me so that when I come again, you will be undefiled and I will bring you back into my house that I have prepared for you. That's what's going on in Revelation chapter 19. The house is done. And the wedding, he's coming to get the bride and bring her back to his house so that there will be a wedding festival. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Now there does seem to be a little bit of a theological tension that is um, given to us by this passage of Scripture because we hear this idea that it was um, that the bride is to make herself ready and the bride is to clothe herself. And people get all uptight. Oh, is this talking about how we earn our salvation? That we're saved by works that this wedding feast occurs because somehow we're saved by... Um, by our deeds first of all I don't think this is talking about justification but there is certainly this theological tension but notice this it was given to her the bride to clothe herself there is the divine passage that God gives the clothing to the bride and the bride clothes herself And the clothing that we are given is the good works of the saints. This is so bound up in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, is it not? You guys know that verse.
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The righteous deeds of the saints are the deeds that we do because Christ has saved us by grace, and then he gives us the very good works that we're supposed to do. And enables us to do them. So clothe yourself. You say, well, I don't know if I can. Yes, you can, because God has already given you the ability to do the good works to glorify Him, that you can put on the wedding garments and be a righteous, pure bride. God has saved us by grace, and He has saved us for good works. What are these good works? I think that in the context, the good works are faithfulness to Christ in light of the seductors. The alluring of this world draws away from Christ and the good works specifically here is that of being remaining faithful to the bridegroom and being untainted and unspotted so that when he comes again there has been no unfaithfulness. You say, oh, that's so hard. Yes, but you have a down payment the Holy Spirit to enable you to do the very thing that he requires you to do. He's given you the good garments. He's given you the garments. He's given you, he's ordained the good works. And then he's even given you the ability to do them. So clothe, we need to clothe ourselves and be faithful to the things of God. And then we end with this. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the fourth beatitude in the book of Revelation. This is the fourth blessed. There are seven blesseds, by the way, in the book of Revelation. Certainly no mistake there. Blessed are the invited. These are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant. Don't people get... You read that and you go, how could John fall at the feet of this angel to worship him? How could he do that? The only thing, the only conclusion I can come to is that these words are so majestic, so glorious, so astounding, so perfect, that John falls down and worships the one who brings in the message. This is no small message. This wedding supper is not so, so, okay, well, that's cool, that's good. It is so profound that John, this is interesting, because John has seen Jesus raise people from the dead. John has seen Jesus walk on water. John has seen Jesus... Feed the home, feed 5,000. John has seen Jesus in the fullness of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration and heard the voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. John has seen the resurrected Christ, and these words are so astounding, powerful, magnificent, and glorious that he falls down at the feet of a messenger. John, who's seen all of that, can't contain himself. I'm not justifying John's action. I am lifting up the words of this message. The angel says these words are true. And John falls down and says, Oh my goodness, I need to worship. And the angel rebukes him. He'll rebuke him again. He'll get rebuked again later on. I think for the same reason, because the message is so astounding that he worships the messenger. And he says, Don't worship me. I'm a servant just like you. Isn't that amazing that this angel says, I'm a servant just like you. Who hold, and I'm your brother, who hold to the testimony of Christ. Only God is to be worshipped. And in the Bible, we see that Jesus is worshipped. The only conclusion, Jesus is God. And by the way, read Hebrews 1. Not only is Jesus worshipped, but the Father commands that Jesus be worshipped. That's an amazing chapter. If you want to understand the divinity of Christ, read Hebrews 1. It's amazing. God says, worship the Son. That either makes God an idolater and wicked, or means that the Son is divine.
worship God and worship God alone. And that's a big part of our message. Only God is to be worshipped. Not the harlot. Not Babylon. Not as we'll see the beast in the future. Not the false prophet. God and God alone is to be worshipped. But I do want to make sure that you understand the weight of the message that John heard. That it was so glorious that he worshipped the messenger. I think maybe we read this passage and, and we just think, oh, it's kind of neat. That's a neat thing. Oh, wedding's great. That's a, that's a wonderful metaphor. It's a neat little thing. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. John thought it was so amazing that he falls down and worships the messenger. He's rebuked for it, so I'm not saying do that. I'm saying understand the message and the gravity of the message. And I pray that over time that God will reveal to us the gravity and the weight of this, of this message. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory unto Him. For the wedding is about to happen. John, just like Jesus said, recorded by John, when the building is done, when the house is complete, I'm going to come back and get you. And then we're going to have a time. I'll conclude with this. This message is an or this passage is an obvious contrast between the harlot and the bride. It is an obvious contrast between rejoicing and lamenting. Which one are you going to pick? Side by side, the moldy sandwich or the good sandwich? Are you going to choose lamenting or rejoicing? Are you going to choose the the vileness of the harlot or the purity of the bridegroom? Which one? I don't think there's really a choice. God has sent out the wedding invitations. It's time to clear the calendar. It's time to make sure you RSVP and to begin to prepare for the coming wedding and to begin to prepare ourselves. And we as a church need to begin to clothe ourselves in the righteous deeds of the saints which God has equipped us to do. So let us live for the bridegroom because he is coming and when he comes he's going to take us back to where he is and there will be a wedding like no other. Let's stand and let's pray.